The following is a recording of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, visit gpts.edu. Well, please, if you could turn in the Word of God to Psalm 102. We've just sang a substantial section of the psalm. I want to take up the reading at verse 12, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Psalm 102, verse 12. But thou, O Lord, shalt endure forever and thy remembrance unto all generations. Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion, for the time to favor her, yea, the set time is come. For thy servants take pleasure in her stones, and favor the dust thereof. So the heathen shall fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth thy glory. When the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. He will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayer. This shall be written for the generation to come, and the people which shall be created shall praise the Lord. For he hath looked down from the height of his sanctuary. From heaven did the Lord behold the earth, to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to loose those that are appointed to death, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion, and his praise in Jerusalem, when the people are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. He weakened my strength in the way. He shortened my days. I said, O my God, take me not away in the midst of my days. Thy years are throughout all generations. Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. The children of thy servants shall continue, and their seed shall be established before thee. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless to us the reading of his own holy word. Please be seated. First of all, let me say thank you for the invitation to come and speak to you today. I'm thankful for you. There are not many seminaries when we look around that personally I would have confidence to direct people toward, and I'm very thankful for the work that you do here in preparing men for the ministry of the gospel. I want to speak to you from Psalm 102, which is entitled, A Prayer of the Afflicted. It appears to be a psalm that was written in the period of captivity, where the psalmist is expressing his own concerns, and yet he stands as a representative mourner so that others can take up his words and use them for themselves. In verse 1 through 11, we have lamentation. He's brokenhearted because of the desolation of Jerusalem, and his sorrow is affecting his soul and his body, and so it manifests itself physically He's not eating his food. He feels depressed, alone, like a pelican 
in the wilderness. But then in verse 12, everything changes as the psalmist looks from his current circumstances to the God who reigns over them all. But thou, O Lord, shalt endure forever, and thy remembrance unto all generations. He begins to think about God who is eternal and unchangeable. And he takes that up again at the end of the psalm in verse 27 through 28. And he is assured that whatever the present circumstances of the church, the Lord will have his church in all ages. He has destroyed, yet he will return again. He will rebuild. He will revive. He will restore. Well, of course, these words have their immediate context in the hope for return from captivity. But the words take us beyond that through the New Testament. They present the advance of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so they apply to us. We are Zion, the city of God. We are the Lord's Jerusalem. And what's true here is very relevant to us, that he will preserve his church. He will restore the church when it is fallen. And he will do this continually until the end of time. But as he does this, there will be particular periods of blessing. You see that as you read through the Old Testament and the New Testament. You discover it when you study church history. These things are predicted in the word of the Lord itself. And so I'm directing your attention in particular to verse 13 and 14 this morning to consider the subject of the reviving of the church of God. Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion for the time to favor her, yea, the set time is come. For thy servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. If I gauge things correctly in Reformed churches in North America, the word revival can cause different reactions. It appears to spook uh, quite a few of our Reformed brethren. And maybe there's reason for that. We study history and we recognize that there are excesses that accompany periods in which we call revival spurious things. And so the good gets lumped in with the bad and the whole gets rejected. I don't want to exaggerate the place of revival before you today, but we dare not underestimate it either. There is such a thing, and it's greatly needed, the reviving of the church of God. What we have here, first of all, revival, a sovereign work of God. Verse 13, thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion. God is sovereign. You know that. Nothing occurs in the history of providence that is not predetermined by the Lord. And that is true of the church. He sovereignly chooses his church in eternity. He sovereignly calls everyone whom he has chosen unto faith in the Lord Jesus Christ through time. And his church will irresistibly advance until the day when the Lord comes to receive her unto himself. But irresistible advance does not mean unopposed advance, nor does it mean uniform 
advance. There are periods of affliction. There are times when the Lord hides his face from his church. And there are periods of blessing. Much like the seasons that revolve in our year, the church will pass through the death of winter. But out of that death, the Lord will return again. And in resurrection power, we will experience the spring of new life. The psalmist knows this. And so in verse uh, verse 13, he speaks in these seasonal terms. He says, thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion for the time or the season to favor her. Yea, the set time or the appointed time has come. Now to root this in context, if this is the psalmist experiencing Babylonian captivity, he knows through books, namely the prophet Jeremiah, that God has brought this devastation upon Jerusalem and that the Lord has appointed 70 years captivity at the end of which he has also promised that his people will return to the land. We don't have such specific predictions in terms of the Lord returning to his church. But what we do have are clear general prophecies and promises. So you can go to Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 26, speaking of the New Testament period. And the Lord describes those times when there will be showers of blessing. Scholars think that Peter may be referring to this in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, where he speaks about times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Now we know that ultimately, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out in a unique, never-to-be-repeated action of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, whatever revival is, it's not a repetition of Pentecost. We don't need another Pentecost. We will not have another Pentecost. But remember, the Spirit who is poured out does not work uniformly or consistently through the history of the church. He works sometimes more, sometimes less. He does this according to his sovereign prerogative. He does this in relation to our sin. But there are these periods of intense work of the Spirit in our souls and in the experience of the church. Well, that being the case, you as an individual ought to pray for these times. Just finished a series preaching through Psalm 119, and it is telling how often the psalmist returns to God with this petition, quicken me. Revivify me. Give me life. We find ourselves like the man and the paramedic comes to him and he has to shock him back to life again. The psalmist is conscious of death ever living with him. And thus he comes to the Lord and he prays, quicken me, give me more of the influence and power of the life-giving spirit of the Lord. But it seems to me that reformed Christians are curtailed somewhat or hindered in, in coming with such petitions to the Lord. 
And there are a variety of reasons for it. We look out at the church in general and, and we see the excesses of the Pentecostal charismatic chaos. And we, we don't want anything to do with it. And so in overreaction to that, it's like we cease to have a functional doctrine of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I think there's a bigger reason. Comes closer to home. And it's that there is an experiential bankruptcy in our own spiritual experience. So that we don't really have an awareness of the power of the Spirit of the Lord in our own lives. And you start talking about revival, and it frightens the life out of Reformed Christians. It takes us beyond intellectual knowledge to experience, powerful experience of the Lord's presence. So it's easy to say mysticism, pietism, and march on with an objective commitment to truth. Individuals need to pray that the Lord would come and revive and quicken our hearts. But what is true of the individual is also true of the corporate body, the church. And the Lord gives us examples and promises to cry to him for the power and the unction of the Holy Spirit. And he's given us thousands of years of church history with evidence of times and seasons of blessings like that. We ought to study them and learn from the good instead of trying to argue them away for our own convenience. I was brought up in Northern Ireland. Many of the small towns have a first and second Presbyterian church, very like here. But when you look at the second Presbyterian church, you'll find this, that the year that they were built is very likely in the 1860s or the early 1870s. The reason for that is that the Lord did something mighty at the end of the 1850s. And yes, it was confused with much that was probably wrong, but there was so much that had lasting good. Communities were transformed. One church in the community was no longer large enough to house all those who desired to come to church. Ministers were preaching differently than they had preached before. In fact, ministers were converted under their own sermons. Maybe the Lord needs to take us to Ezekiel's Valley and show us these dry bones and put to us the question again, son of man, can these bones live? And if we're wise, we'll come with the answer of Ezekiel, Lord, thou knowest why? Because revival is a sovereign work of God. And the Lord will say, preach to the bones and we'll preach, but it's not enough merely to preach. He'll say, prophesy to the wind. Pray for the breath of God. 
come, O wind, from the four corners and breathe upon these dry bones that they might live. We'll lay hold of promises given to us such as this. I will pour water upon him who is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. We'll long for the Lord to come and send a plentiful rain whereby he refreshes his heritage when it is weary. Revival is a sovereign work of God. But then the second thing to note here is revival is a merciful moving of God. Again, verse 13, thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion. You see how the activity is described. God moves. Thou shalt arise. In other words, you will stand up. As one who we may conceive of, who was formerly seated, he stands up now to act. Think how often the church prays like this, Psalm 68, which is a psalm prophetic of the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet it begins, let God arise and let his enemies be scattered like smoke before the wind, like wax before the flame. Let God arise. What about Psalm 78, verse 65? You know, when you have verses like this in the Bible, you're thankful. They're inspired by the Lord. You wouldn't dare sometimes to say things like this if they weren't given to you by God himself. Psalm 78, verse 65. Then the Lord awaked as one out of sleep and like a mighty man that shouteth by reason of wine. It appears to the church as though God slept, that he was inattentive to their needs, but now he arises and far from sleeping, he shouts like a mighty warrior, refreshed with wine, leading his church out to conquer in the midst of the battle. Jeremiah chapter 14, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. Lord, you are our Savior. But why is it that you are like a stranger to us and like a wayfaring man that you don't want to come with us or you visit but for a time and then it's as though you leave us again? Well, you know that the Lord is never inactive, that God is always at work in his church by the Holy Spirit blessing the ordinary means of grace. And we are profoundly thankful for that. We should never underestimate that uh, either. But these periods of blessing, these times of revival, are times when the Lord plucks his right hand out of his bosom and begins to plead his own cause through the same work of the Holy Spirit, yet intensified. So we're not looking for anything essentially different in periods of revival. We're looking for the same work of the Holy Spirit intensified, blessing the same ordinary means of grace, but in extraordinary ways. It's not revivalism we seek. 
that begins to bring in new methodologies and psychological tricks to hoodwink people into a conversion of a profession of faith. It's not new methods. It's the old methods taken up in the hand of the Holy Spirit. With different results. The privilege of speaking to an old minister about 20 years ago. He was a pastor in Wales. He labored on preaching the word faithfully for many years. And the Lord laid him low. He continued with the desire to preach the gospel, but he wasn't strong enough to stand. So when he managed to get to the pulpit, he had to sit down and he taught the people. And through that period, nothing changed, yet everything changed. He was preaching the same things that he always preached before, but different things happened. People were converted. Strangers started coming into the church. Young people came to him with inquiries so that he started a meeting in the manse. The meeting began with some young people sitting on the seats. It grew. They were upon the floor. It grew so that they were in the hallway and sitting up the stairs of the house. And he said to me, I did nothing. I couldn't. I was at the weakest point in the whole of my ministry. But God came. Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion. God moves, yet he moves in mercy. He, he looks upon the church in its lowest state and he pities her. The word favor in verse 14 is the same word used in Psalm 103, that the Lord will pity his people as a father pitieth his children. And there's much more I could say on this point, but to leave it here for now with you, doesn't Jesus Christ use this image of the father when he tells us to pray? And he says, if your father won't give you a stone when you ask for a fish, or he won't give you a scorpion when you ask for bread, how much more will your Father which is in heaven give you what? Give you the Holy Spirit. Well, here it is. The Father in mercy looking upon the church. What do they need? They need the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And this warrior who arises to the fight is also a father who pities his children. Revival is a merciful moving of God. But thirdly, revival is the sincere concern of the church. Revival is the sincere concern of the church. In verse 13, God will arise and have mercy. The reason is given for the time to favor her is come. For, for the time to favor her, yea, the set time is come. That's how he knows. But it's not the only reason. Verse 14, the word for is used again. But this time, it has to do with the church itself. For thy servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. The set time corresponds with the sincere concern of the church. Matthew Henry says here, 
that when God desires to bless his church, he always sets his people praying. Well, from verse 14, you see two things that are helpful for us. The first is they faced up to the church's condition. For thy servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. The psalmist is in captivity. It's obvious to him that the cause of God is at a low end. Think of Nehemiah. There he is in the palace and his cousin Hanani comes and he he says, well, tell me news of of Jerusalem. And he says, the people are afflicted. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down. The gates thereof are burned with fire. He lays out the low condition of the church before Nehemiah and Nehemiah considers it in the palace and he weeps and mourns and fasts certain days and prays unto the God of heaven. And then when he goes back to the city, he talks to no one. He gets upon his donkey and he goes round surveying the ruins before he does anything about it. Again, we read in the prophet Isaiah chapter 64, verse 10 and verse 11 of the devastation that God had brought upon his covenant people. Descriptive terms. Isaiah 64, verse 10 and 11. Thy holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and our beautiful house where our fathers praised thee is burned up with fire and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Do you stop to honestly face up to the desolate condition of the visible church of Jesus Christ today? Not just your own little corner of it. There are parts of the visible church that lie in utter ruins, that are an abomination to God. And yet, in years, past. They were glorious. You can wash your hands of it and say, I thank God I'm not like uh, other churches. But we find our heritage from these places destroyed by false doctrine, by chaotic morality, And those churches to this present day continue their mad ongoing ecclesiastical and spiritual suicide. That ought to impact you. Conservative churches are sliding. You could tell your story and I could tell mine. But where there is orthodoxy, There's also deadness. Do you not find that there's a doctrinal piety in Reformed churches? Oh, we need doctrine for piety. We need places like this to train men and oh, that the Lord would raise up many more of them. But a doctrinal piety that knows things but doesn't know anything as we ought to know it. So we go to church and we enjoy sermons. Why? Because the sermon was orthodox and the minister handled the text properly. His hermeneutics were good. His exegesis 
was sound, but we leave the way we came in. We're not changed. We might know more things, but we don't know God more. This is a huge problem. A huge problem in the church. We need to stop kidding ourselves. We need to take the wall, a tour of the walls of our own church and examine not only what we see outwardly, but what is true inwardly to take spiritual stock and, and, and temperature and to understand where we actually are with regard to spiritual health as the people of God. And I submit to you, including myself in this, that there is far more desolation than what we are prone to see. The psalmist faced up to the church's condition, but then he does something else. He favored the church in her desolation. He favored the church in her desolation, for thy servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. Why? Because these are God's stones and this is Christ's dust. So when we look at the church and we see her in her lowest state and in her ruins, we don't walk away from her. We love even the dust of Zion. Verse 14, we favor the dust thereof. The word favor is the same as in verse 13, the time to favor her, yea, the set time has come. What's happening between these two verses? The favor of God toward the church is seen in his moving the saints of God to favor the church as he does. God brings them low. He makes them pass through hard things. He makes them to drink the wine of astonishment, but to what end? So that they might experience a radical change in their interests and in their priorities. There they are in Jerusalem, running about after their own things, desecrating the Sabbath day, being turned onto idolatry. And God brings the, the, the Babylonians as his scourge upon them. And he takes them to Babylon. And their captors say, sing us one of your songs of Zion. And they say, how can we? How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? But what do they say next? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let skill part from my right hand. Let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I do not set Jerusalem above my chief joy. Do you see how the psalmist is beginning to favor the stones and the dust of Zion? He knows the city of God is in ruins. But he says that heap of rubble is my chief joy in the world. What's your chief joy? Really? Honestly? You might tell me something with your lips that your life would contradict if we were just to, to, to keep a, a time frame of any given day or week. What is your chief joy? Well, praise God, there are set times of blessing. And when we see this, 
we ought to pray. You ought to pray privately. The church ought to pray corporately. Prayer meetings will be multiplied. One pastoral prayer in one service of worship in a Lord's Day won't cut it when the Lord blesses like this. God's people will want to gather for prayer. They'll unfurl the prayers of Scripture like Daniel. They'll own their own sins and those of their fathers, and they'll cry to God, Oh, hear us. But the church will preach. You say, well, that's obvious. The church is preaching. But it's more of a question of what will the church preach? And Scripture and history are very informative to us at this point. Study what men preached at times when God blessed. They're not preaching how to transform the culture. They're not saying, well, we've got a problem of biblical masculinity and femininity, and we do, and that is a big problem. So let's preach on how to be a man. I say to you young men in the ministry, learn the tools of preaching. Drink in all of the knowledge and skill that you can here. Learn how to exegete. Learn hermeneutics. Learn biblical theology. Learn systematic theology. But listen, go and find yourself sermons of men who were used of God in the past and immerse yourself in them. You'll not experience the same thing as those who heard them in those days, but what you will see is what those men preached that was owned by the Spirit of God. We go into churches, reformed churches today, and we get nice biblical theology that gets us very cleanly to the Lord Jesus Christ and from the cross to the eschaton. Everybody smiles and goes home. These men preached the ruin of men in sin, and they did it vividly. They didn't just say, you're a sinner, and well, you know, don't worry too much about it. Jesus is a savior. They stripped men bare. They left them with nothing. And then they preached redemption by the blood thoroughly. The wrath of God, the propitiation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they held Jesus Christ out freely to sinners and passionately to sinners. And they pleaded with men to come to him. They preached repentance towards God. They didn't merely say, you need to believe in Jesus. They sounded the first note, like the prophets, like Jesus, like John the Baptist, like Peter on the day of Pentecost. Repent. The gospel demands something from you. It demands that you turn completely from your sin unto God in Christ. And they preached regeneration by the power of the Holy Spirit, the utter inability of of the sinner and the absolute necessity of the new birth. It is tragic that we can sit in Reformed churches today and not hear these things constantly trumpeted before men. 
Yet these are the truths that God has repeatedly owned in revival. Read Sprague's lectures on revival. You'll see it. We need to rebuild these old waste places that we love. Listen to Dabney. The real need is not new methods, but fidelity to the old, a real revival in the hearts of ministers and Christians themselves, a faith that feels the power of the world to come, a solemn, deep love for souls. What we need most is repentance and not innovation. Depending upon the sovereign grace of God, with concern for the low state of God's Zion in faith, these verses compel us to come to God, to plead with him, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known, in wrath, O Lord, remember mercy. You please stand with me for prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, we have heard of you with the hearing of our ears. But, oh, that our eyes might behold you. You are here. You are present with your church when your church gathers. But, oh, that you would reveal yourself to us. That we might behold your glory through the word in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. O oh Lord, our God, stir up a longing in our own souls today to cry out to you that you would return and visit the vine that you have planted with your right hand, that you would make yourself strong for yourself and for your own name's sake, Lord, help us. To these long desolations, thy feet lift, do not tarry, Come to us and wash away all of our sins and breathe upon us as you did to those bones in the valley of vision that we would have life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, please visit gpts.edu.